0: Look alive, sunshine.
1: The question is not if it's gonna stop, it, but who is gonna stop the electric centaur that demopar revolution will not be televised. How's it going everyone? Welcome to the Grindhouse Podcast. I am your host Dave and this will actually be the last podcast I do from Atlanta, Georgia for a little while. The series that I was working on has wrapped, and starting tomorrow morning, by the time you're listening to this podcast, I'll be hitting the road, avoiding hurricanes, avoiding Rona, and making my way on back to California with a couple of fun stops along the way. We may, uh, depending on where we're at, we'll probably be home before I do the next podcast, but um, definitely put up some photos for you guys of uh, me and Jude traveling back across the U.S. to uh, our, my home in Los Angeles on his way to his home back in Thailand. So for this episode, I wanted to start us off with our witch tournament. You know, we've been getting a really great response from everyone. I really appreciate everyone contributing. Some really good, uh, you know, people really feel passionate about these different movies about witches. And again, I, I've had people tell me that like, you know, seeing these movies that we're putting up there on the tournament and kind of inspires them to watch it and it's sort of made the summer more bearable i mean in a lot of places aside from just you know COVID 19 you've also got in california you know the big fires that are going on and heat waves and um man there was even like a a tornado fire fire tornado that happened you know Uh, like i mentioned there's two there's two hurricanes that are about to hit the gulf of mexico and i grew up in in south texas so i'm used to those hurricanes hitting the gulf and it's it can be scary i mean these aren't these aren't the biggest hurricanes that have ever hit the coast i mean certainly those of us who have lived on the coast sort of know uh the drill we've had you know category fives and whatnot but you know nevertheless it brings heavy wind and rain and it's always the the less fortunate that I tend to get hit the hardest so um you know there's a lot of people are having a tough time right now, and I appreciate the feedback that even this uh, silly little tournament might be bringing some people like a little reprieve from the stresses of, of the real world. So that's, that's kind of what we do this for. The whole point of this is for us to connect as a community and to maybe have fun for, you know, 45 minutes to an, an hour and a half. So last week we had two really good movies going up against each other. We had The Witches of Eastwick against The Witches. Both movies that people of my generation for certainly grew up with. Um, I think it was a really tough choice because they're really excellent. I think some of our earlier films, you could sort of clearly see a favorite emerge. But with this one, um, I thought it was going to be... Actually, I'm actually surprised with the results for two reasons. A, I thought it was going to go the other direction. And B, I I didn't. I thought it was going to be way closer than it ended up being. Uh, even though a lot of people expressed that they loved both movies... Very clearly, one was the winner. And so the winner this week versus The Witches of Eastwick versus The Witches was The Witches of Eastwick. 42 votes, 26. So the clear-cut winner, uh, even if people loved both movies, obviously that was the one. I would have thought The Witches would have won just because, I, I mean, that movie was so scary. The scene where Angelica Houston, like, rips off her wig and she's got the creepy, like, witch face with the elongated nose and all that. That was, like superb special effects even by today's standards and certainly back then it was really eerie um but the people have spoken and the witches of eastwick advance to the next round of our tournament and for this week we have another set of movies that i think are gonna be really tough and that is suspiria the original not the remake versus rosemary's baby and i know i know that there are some people who will claim that rosemary's baby is not a witch movie However, I think that the the themes of it, especially, like, look, as, as it relates to movie, cinematic uh, definition of what witches are, I think Rosemary's Baby counts. It's got devil-worshipping followers. They're doing rituals of sorts. I don't think that they come out right and say they're witches, and they certainly, you know, they're not following the older school tropes of, like, the pointy hats or the brooms or anything like that, but... It still falls well within the realm of, of a cinematic witch movie. And I thought that going up against Suspiria, they were sort of thematically aligned. So I think it's going to be another tough one. I'm not sure which one is going to advance on this one. I think it's a, a coin flip. And certainly my thoughts on the last round were way off. So remember, there's two ways to vote to express your opinion on which movie is the best witch movie. You can first off go to our partners on this witch tournament. The Slasher app. and go to their Instagram at the Slasher app. And every Monday, they will post the two movies that are competing against each other. And you can just vote right there in the comment section. Really simple. And if you want to vote every day of the week, you can go over to our Instagram page, at Grant House Podcast. And in the stories, I post the links of the two movies in a poll. And you can vote for them right up there as well. As many times as you want. So uh, make your voice heard. If you have an opinion on which, which movie is more supreme... Suspiria, or Rosemary's Baby, let us know. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you decide. This is a tournament for the people to determine which witch movie is the supreme witch movie. Now, I don't have a guest for this show because, again, it's been pretty busy with filming and all that. And I wanted to uh, spend a lot of time just kind of making you guys the co-host in some ways and answering more questions because um, that's really fun for me, especially when I'm doing a show by myself, you know, when I don't necessarily have someone to bounce off of, um, answering your questions makes it super, super fun for me. So I will get to those and there's some really good ones this show. But before we do, I wanted to talk about a movie that I hadn't seen before. And, and usually when I do, um, when I do movie reviews or talk about movies or sort of an- analyze them, Oftentimes, there are movies I've seen a bunch of times. And so it's really easy for me to talk about because, you know, like uh, The Ninth Gate, I I watch like, uh, you know, four or five times a year, maybe more, right? Uh, Blade Runner, which I don't know if we've ever done an episode dedicated to Blade Runner, but I will, because that is an all time favorite of mine. But, um, you know, or Tusk, for example. These are all films that I've seen a billion times. I love them. I could recite them to you, they're easy. Uh, when we, when I've done like newer releases, then it's a little different because I don't want to spoil things for everyone. This week, I decided to pick a movie that I had not seen before, but that's old enough for me to really get into the meat of it because it's a it's a weird movie. It's a movie that um, I think requires some some analysis to sort of unravel the the themes and the moods of that film. And that film is Valhalla Rising by by nicholas winding Refn, and the reason what made me think about that movie was i was watching drive with uh, my friend jude a regular co-host of the show and he'd never seen that movie so i was like well you have to see this movie because to me drive is like the quintessential indie film if you want to know how to write and shoot and look and i know it's not it's not truly an indie film i think it's like a 15 million dollar movie but You'd have to imagine with the, with the stellar lineup that it has that most of that was above the line, and there was a couple of big scenes, I guess. There was a couple, of, you know, pretty pretty intensive driving scenes. One in particular. But you know, most of what makes that movie work is the script and the acting and the shooting, and 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 the parts of a film that you can control as a filmmaker, even on an indie budget. You know, if you took away the driving scenes. Um, You almost lose nothing from it because that movie is filled with tension, not only in the way that it's performed, but the way that it's it's uh, structured and uh, the the minimalistic usage of dialogue and the filming and all that stuff. And it's just I could go on. I could do a whole episode just about that movie. But it got me thinking, you know, we've been doing sort of a series of movies that have touched on some more occultic sensibilities And I wanted to keep that theme going. So rather than do it on Drive, I had always been wanting to see Valhalla Rising, which had been recommended to me many times as a movie that I liked. And certainly, you know, I like reference movie Drive. And so I thought it's worth going back to see. I hadn't realized that it had come first. I actually thought Drive was his first movie, but it looks like he's done Bronson and Valhalla Rising before he did Drive. So I put that on the other night and... It is, I mean, obviously there's going to be spoilers, it's, a, it's an older film, movie, but it is such a bizarre, but such an artistic movie. One of the things that I love, that you see starting to come back more and more and more, is sort of an authorship with the way films are put together. You know, I think for a long time within the world of, say, action, um, or horror, you know, genre films, they were like, you were hitting plug and play moments. You know, there were certain certain moments that everyone knew. Certain um, uh, exploitative things that you had to get out of this film. Expectations that people have. You know, in horror, there were uh, so. I, I mean, literally, I've produced a film where the studio was like, "You need to have a death every ten pages." You know, roughly every ten minutes, and it needs to be a, a fright or a murder or something every ten pages to keep the audience interested. I've worked on other sets where they've said, "Here's our formula." You have a fight scene every 10 to 15 minutes and you have three nudity scenes in it and the first nudity scene can be kind of uh simple and then the next one is a little bit more raunchy and then there's got to be a, an intense love scene or sex scene in the film like that's our formula so for a long time genre e- existed in that world where it was all about formula it was all about hitting certain deliverable points and in recent years, especially like within horror and even to a lesser degree action, you've seen that you've seen films break away from that, and take some real, some real artistic chances. And when you watch the trailer for Valhalla Rising, it would be really easy to chalk this up into some sort of sword and sandals action flick, you know, like uh, like Gods of Egypt or uh, uh, what was that uh, Orlando Bloom movie, the Crusade one, you know, things of that nature and it's not that at all. It's this and, and I think that's what I like about Reffin's work so much is because he he has main he has managed to hold on to artistic sensibility. He's he's managed to infuse a certain artsiness, an art house element into his films. And I, I think that the responses have been somewhat mixed, but he holds on to making film feel like a work of art. And I think that not all filmmakers hold on to that and, and look he, maybe he won't either but a prime example of someone who I feel like has stepped away from that to some degree and and look this is, this is not me throwing shade it's just an observation but I love Christopher Nolan and Christopher Nolan has a film that's coming out called Tenet in theaters that has gotten a lot of people very conflicted on how to review it because he's insisting on it being viewed in theaters and to me not to go on too much of a tangent, but part of the conflict, I feel like, is that Christopher Nolan has become so obsessed with spectacle. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked with uh, Jason from The Regrettable Century about the spectacle, right? And if you look at at, at Nolan's early films, right, even like his features like Memento, um, or you can go back to Following, or uh, uh, Inception. i uh, not sorry, not Inception, um, Insomnia and The Prestige. You start you really saw really artistic storytelling. I mean, it gets progressively less arthouse as it goes. I wouldn't call it The Prestige or even really Insomnia arthouse, but Insomnia definitely has sort of a, an indie sensibility to it, and The Prestige feels like a well-written story. And the Batman movies, at least the first the first one for sure still has a, a bit of that. But then, as you start getting into the Dark Knight and Inception and the Dark Knight Returns and uh, Interstellar in particular and Dunkirk, you start seeing that his it's it becomes more about the sets and the set pieces and the and to, I guess world building. But that's usually something attached to sort of fantasy films. But it, it works even in the world of uh, realism as well, especially when it relates to Nolan films. You just see him moving further and further away from the more artistic endeavors he used to do into these more uh, commercial spectacles. And I feel like him insisting on his film being viewed in the cinemas is sort of a byproduct of him being lost in the spectacle of it all, the viewership of it all. And, you know, a good story can be viewed... On your phone, and it's just as good as if it's if it's you know broadcast on a on a sixty foot screen or a hundred foot screen or whatever. It doesn't make a difference because the strong st- storytelling is what really drives the film It drives the success of it. With Refn, I feel like he has to the, to date maintained that. You know, he hasn't moved, and he could right, he could, but he he, he could move into the world of Spectre. He obviously has a very good eye for making, you know, cinematically dynamic films, but yet he still has held on to that sensibility and that has that is a never more on display than it in Valhalla Rising. You know, it opens up with a silent character who is, is speaks not a single line throughout the film, played by Mad Mickelson, and uh, only given the name One-eyed. And he is something of a uh, a slave or a captured man in the Scandinavian you know, world way back when, uh, around the time of the Crusades, and when when the film opens, he's captive and being forced into, I guess, medieval um, mud fighting. You know, he's sort of a. It's pretty evident that right off the bat that he's a very a very terrifying warrior, very. Uh, adept to the art of war and so much so that when he fights these other these other warriors they 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 give him a disadvantage of being you know chained by his neck before he fights them and still he destroys them with almost perfect ease and the only person that shows him even the slightest bit of compassion is a young boy and he's captive by these sort of uh, you know these pagan sort of slave traders until one day he's able to break free and and he slaughters his, his captives. Early on, it's established that through this really cool sort of red screen effect, that One-Eyed has some sort of ability of premonition. You know, he can see into the future in some way. He can predict what's about to happen. And I think that all gives a lot of clues as to who one eye actually is. Uh, you, certainly, if you read any analysis online, I think it's pretty evident. But um, one eye is Odin. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Odin, Odin is the All-Father. He is the head of the Aesir, uh, pantheon You know, if you uh, certainly I guess if you've seen the if you've seen the Marvel movies, he's like the, the father of Thor and Loki. Right. But in traditional Norse mythology, um, he's the head of Asgard. And he once was hung by the World Tree. And an eye pecked out to give him all-seeing abilities. Where he could see every corner of the world through his two ravens. And while it's never explicitly said in this film, it is said multiple times that one eye comes from hell. And hell in Norse mythology is not like hell as Christians provided. It's simply the afterlife. It's the underworld right it's it's just a place where everyone goes unless you're the most fearsome of warriors then you go to valhalla right and the idea behind it is the, is the asgardian gods as they were thought of in their in those times were not immortal they were maybe immortal as far as man is concerned but they obviously could die as is told in the stories of ragnarok so odin would Feel this great hall in Asgard, in Valhalla, with all the greatest warriors that were to die. And the idea behind that is that those warriors would serve him when the the twilight of the gods would occur, when Ragnarok would occur, and they would be there to fight for him. So this whole movie is one long sort of thematic look at death. You know, that even, even them saying that, you know, they don't say Odin came, or one eye, came from... You know, Valhalla, or came from, um, or Asgard. They say he came from hell. He's like a god of death, and and that's reflective in his warrior prowess, his ability to just take men out. And he he eventually, after he escapes his captors, falls in lines with some Scandinavian Christian converts who have decided that they could use a strong hand to accompany them as they try to travel to Jerusalem. To fight, to take back the, you know, the, the, as they would refer to it as God's land, uh, is as a member of the Crusades. And so one night sort of set cells with them. And, and from that moment on, you're basically getting one surreal journey, almost like Dante's Inferno, where the him and his cohorts are sailing in a boat and it's like 30 minutes of just fog. Right, you can't see anything. It's really you've got like seven actors in a boat, and all the performances are happening in that, and everything around you, you just see lit up fog, you know, 360, and they eventually come out of the fog and realize that they've landed not in Jerusalem but in the New World, and when you look at the cer- certain of the breakdowns of this films, the New Land is sort of referred to or speculated that is it's actually hell. That they're in, that they've actually crossed over to the underworld, um, if not literally, symbolically. And one could sort of tongue-in-cheek insert assert that that reference is actually referring America as hell, which I don't think would be the most outlandish assertion that one could make. But nevertheless, these Scandinavian Christians have made it to the New World, and much like we've seen in stories of, say, Columbus. And, and films that sort of focus on that side of Christianity, they, they look to take it over, right? One of the themes in this film, aside from the long, slow descent into death, is the abuse of Christianity, of the church, of uh, speaking one set of ideals, but yet being, being uh, your actions being reflective of the, of the contrary to that. You know, regardless of your particular religious affiliation, um, for about 300, maybe 400 years after the historical Jesus would have died, after the birth of what is now known as Christianity, there was the edict within that sect, which was a very small sort of occultic sect, sect that thou shalt not kill, and it was taken literally. It wasn't until Augustine of the Roman Empire converted over to Christianity that the idea that like some death is okay, some murdering is okay. If it's done in the name of the God, right? If it's done in the name in the name of the Lord, then it's okay. It's it's justified. And what you saw was a slow progression from a peaceful sect into one that justified war and abuse and conquering and um, colonialism and all the horrors that came that we that we're used to seeing when we talk about, say like British settlers or even Spanish settlers. We've seen those stories, right? But this is from the perspective of Scandinavians who many people believe were the first Europeans to set foot on what is now known as America. So along with, uh, you know, this sort of weird artsy version of these characters, slow descent, ultimately to their end. You also had this theme of, of, uh, these people feeling like they had they were following this righteous movement but in fact all their actions were the complete opposite of that and maybe that is in fact what leads them to their death eventually as they land to the the new world they're slowly pecked off by native americans and um all other means of atrocities that eventually leads to everyone's death and culminates with one-eyed slash Odin sacrificing himself uh, in sort of a messianic way to uh, Native Americans, the whole film you never see them until the very very end. Uh, one eye and the young boy that follows him have come to made their way to the bay, and then you see uh, a tribe of Native Americans uh, of of uh, indigenous people rise up, and he just sort of you know he's this fierce warrior that's literally slaughtered everyone he's come across and he drops his weapons and he you know in a premonition he realizes that he must die to create balance there's a really awesome scene where he's stacking rocks that all the the these sort of crusaders they've taken this this psychedelic drink you know and they all start tripping and uh it brings out uh, their id the id arises from within them and they get into this sort of primal state and And one eye spends his trip stacking rocks, trying to create balance. And in a moment of premonition at the end of the film, he sees himself going back into the water and becoming one more with the sea. And I I think that it symbolizes the end of his journey. His role in this film was to lead these men to their death. But in another way also, you know, paganism... In the eyes of Christianity has always been seen as something primal, um, brutish, um, uncivilized. And yet these men of faith actually when, when put through the ringer, when the times get hard, they're the ones that actually exhibit the most uncivilized behavior. You know, one eye is only vicious towards those who harm him. The young boy is an innocent throughout the film. It's these men of God who, who, as they're taken out of their comfort zone, out of their their facade of being superior morally, that as they were, as they return to their more brutish side, you start to see the the um, the violence that can erupt from them. And I think uh, Nicholas Reffin is notorious for using violence as a sort of theme throughout his projects and his his protagonists to be those who are. Um, symbolic of violence, symbolic of the primal nature of man. And so there's a lot of themes that run through this, uh, this idea of, of being led to death. You know, Odin representing the old gods, leading a group of converts to their death is sort of symbolic of a victory of sorts. It could also be that that um, Odin is symbolic of their old way of living, and he's accompanying them as they transition into their new faiths. And he dies because they no longer believe in him. Uh, that was certainly a theme that exists in a book that I read a long time ago called The Children of Odin. Where, you know, after Ragnarok, there were a few gods left over. But the, eventually they began to lose their power as new gods were believed in. And and, and it was the belief in these gods that gave them their their immortality or their power and so symbolically odin you know has one last run but as it's evident that new faiths new beliefs are starting to take hold he no longer has a place in this world and and he he goes back into the earth he's reclaimed by the sea and at least in his vision you know certainly as the way the young boy sees it he is uh he's brutally beaten to clubbed to death by the indigenous people. Again, it's it's uh, the, the themes of violence are always pre- present in his work, and uh, there's a lot to unload. It's not a film that you can watch once and really sort of easy tell the story. It feels like a. It's even chapterized in six equal parts, so it feels almost like you're watching a um, like a, 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 a audio visual presentation. Than you are a, a traditional linear movie. All this, all the same though, I think it's really brilliantly done, and I think it's a really good watch. And if you want to get a sense of something, and that makes that will make you think, and also make you do research, make you sort of dig in deeper after the fact, make you sort of try to uncover what was being said through all the visuals. This is a movie. It's a, it's it's a movie that's going to make you think for sure. If you just watch the trailer, it, it looks like just a kick-ass action film, but it's way more than that. But I highly recommend it. Four tusk for this film. Uh, only doesn't get five because there are definitely moments where it's like a little hard to always follow what was what's happening, uh, both in good ways and and in maybe not so good ways. So, um, but kudos to Refren for sticking through, being infusing an artistic sensibility in his action film or as he sort of sees as a sci-fi film uh it is another movie that sort of taps into some of the ideas of the occult as it relates to you know death and the afterlife and what our mortality means what are what it means to be man it's very existential in that manner and i i definitely recommend everyone check that out let me know what you think about it let me know if you think it's just totally weird and um and hopefully you get something out of it i certainly did and i i really love him as a filmmaker and i want to watch uh what is the movie is it god uh, i forget it's something god um i tried watching it once it also has it also has ryan gosling in it uh, only god forgives but it was a little slow but i want to go back because for sometimes these movies you have to be in the right headspace to really get the most out of it that you can and uh, I really appreciate a director who's willing to hold true to their beliefs and make cinema fun and interesting again. Because what I think we're going to find, and I know I've answered this question through our mailbag multiple times, is that theaters are going through a massive transition phase with COVID, and and uh, you know people's economic states are going to be in shambles. When we come on the other end of this, if they're not already, and I just think that the, the face of cinema and art projection and art commerce is going to change so rapidly that you might see if you won't, if it, was, if it hasn't already been proven to be the case, more and more stuff coming home to home viewing, to streaming, to VOD. And what that means is that the need and maybe the justification for the larger than life spectacle may start declining and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a great thing, in fact. I think the opportunity for these smaller thematic stories to exist, I think it's there. And I think there's going to be there's so many different streaming services that are looking for content that some of them may take chances on the more artistic endeavors. And that can only be a good thing because it's been missing from cinema um, for pretty, maybe not for, I mean, I think it's coming back, but it's been, it definitely has felt like most of the 2000s it's been far and few, few and far between, and I hope that that changes. So, this movie is a good movie in the right direction. So is Drive. I hope so. Is Only God Forgives and and any other of these movies? You know the the Robert Eggerts of the world and the uh, Nicholas Windy Weffren and and uh, you know Jordan Peele. All the, you know these this new crop of filmmakers that are really leading this more artistic filmmaking. I, I, I'm here for it, man. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know what you think. And without further ado, let's move on to some audience questions. Questions from Macarrett.
0: So Rach asks in movies with serial killers, why is there always a feeling that they try to get you to empathize with the killer?
1: So this is a really great question about serial killers and why, films uh, with serial killers always try to get you to empathize with the killer and uh, the reason behind that is that it makes for so in, in movies right the idea when you're doing screenwriting which you aim, or any kind of writing really any kind of creative writing your aim is to create what's called round characters these are characters that have a full range of emotion the world in which you know is, you know square-jawed heroes who punch first ask questions later or um mustache twirling villains that has long since passed and what we have found with all kinds of art including cinema is that the more compelling a story the more compelling uh, the more compelling the villains and the stories and the characters the more compelling the story itself one of the key elements in a in a strong film to me is tension and it almost doesn't matter what the genre is right like uh i watched <laughs> i watched the other day serendipity right tension throughout the whole film will they or will they not get together whole theme of the film right uh they run they, they pass each other by in the middle of the night they don't see each other they get into the elevator at the last minute like it's all tension silly tension light-hearted tension romantic comedy tension but tension nevertheless right obviously I mentioned drive at the top of this podcast drive exists almost purely on tension, like long, awkward holes on the characters. And you can just see her feeling this sort of weirdness between each other. Like that, that is what pun intended drives the film until you get to your release. So with serial killer films, for example, or like a horror movies as far as an example, if you can identify with the villain and you know what's the villain, it makes it that it increases the tension, not just within the movie, but within yourself. You know, a, a movie that did this excellently, um, which is a spectacle film, in fact, is Avengers Infinity War. Thanos is obviously a villain. He aims to kill half the universe, but his rationale is somewhat understandable even if you don't want to admit it and because of that you're not rooting for him but you also feel conflicted and that conflict plays into the film so typically with really great uh movies where with villains that have that are iconic like uh, here's another example of a serial killer who you can kind of empathize with is John Doe from Seven such a brilliantly made film, and it's a film where, where, I mean, the 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 atrocities that John Doe performs are disgusting. They're terrible, but when you what, but when you start to hear his rationale for it, even if you don't like the methods in which he in which he employs, um, his motive, you kind of understand it. You kind of understand where he's coming from, how grotesque the world has become, how selfish the world has become, and it builds this uncomfortable tension within yourself morally. Is this right? Why am I agreeing with this person even on a, on a low level? And the release is when it's revealed that he cut off the head of the only truly sympathetic character in the movie, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, and sticks her head in a box and 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 then uh, Brad Pitt's character, you know, kills him in in wrath, and that's the release, right? So you build this tension, you build this tension, you build this tension, and then you get the release, and that's sort of the intention behind making your villains at least somewhat empathetic. Now that being said, there's this weird phenomenon that's going on where people are way too attracted to serial killers. It's it goes beyond a fascination, and it, and it seems to be going into the territory of 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 people feeling like um like I, I don't know i like you saw with ted bundy a lot where like a lot of women are like oh my god he's hot oh my god he's this it's like it's a really disturbing this is not the intention of the filmmaker i don't think it's just generally speaking there's this weird modern fascination with these grotesque real life brutalizers that predominantly women, not all women, certainly, but like it seems like there was at least a phase. I don't, I guess it's a little less now, but there seemed to be a phase where like on my social media, it seemed like a lot of people were sort of exalting these real life murderers um, because of the popularity of the serial killer genre in general. And I never quite understood it. There's certainly an idea that real life anxieties have to get played out, and sometimes they, they, they get played out in, um, so, for like example, like uh, we don't have to be—we're not really afraid of, of of I don't know saber-toothed tigers anymore, but we create roller coasters to create a controlled sense of danger. And that there's some people that would say that this sort of fascination with serial killers is a byproduct of that. Like we don't—there's re- real dangers in the world, and we're trying to process that through watching these these you know murders on television and when things of that nature so um maybe that's it i don't know i can't speak to that but where i'm going with that is what i what i have seen is that movies like the ted bundy movie and some of these other things like that where they're they're telling the stories of real life serial killers they've kind of gone beyond um Trying making the character empathetic enough for tension purposes for dramatic purposes and they've gone into a weird fetishy realm where they've I, I mean they're, they're catering to people's fetishes I guess I don't know i, I, I it's hard for me to answer that because I don't agree with it I, I like I, I think that it's important that when you're creating all characters especially your villain for your villain's motivation to be somewhat empathetic or for us to be somewhat empathetic to their motivation but I, I think you could certainly take that too far And uh, You should really question why you're doing that It feels exploitative to me But um, I don't know I, uh, Hopefully that ends Keep it within the realm of dramatic tension Don't take it into a, a weird a weird Territory
0: Sir Freach also asks Why are certain themes in movies taboo? For example, when you worked on Saving Zoe Why was it so hard to get a studio to pick it up? Is it because they're worried about ratings Even if these are real world issues?
1: Um, so, there are certain things I can't talk about with movies. Uh, I don't think that the theme of that movie was solely the reason why it had difficulty finding a distributor. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why movies get picked up and why they don't. And look, chiefly amongst them, indie movies are kind of becoming harder to make. And not just because budgets are going down, but also because there's just less, there's, the business model is changing. It used to be you would make an indie for like, you know, under two million or a million and you would for you would sell foreign, you know, you'd stick some recognizable name in it, and you would sell foreign and maybe you'd make a third of your money that way, and then you'd shoot in an incentive state and maybe you'd get a third of your money back that way and you'd you'd hope that you could sell it domestically and do a, a limited theatrical run of maybe, you know, under fifty screenings, maybe less than twenty screenings and then you put it on on VOD and you'd make the the last third of your money back. That was that was the sort of the the model even you know as recently as like 2012 2013 and maybe even honestly maybe even 2015 2016. So it wasn't that long ago, but since then, even in the couple years since then, as things started moving to screen uh to streaming and as the idea of releasing series in a in a batch you know, like the Netflix model of just dumping everything on you, what occurred is that you have to fill it with more content. So instead of releasing a two-hour movie that you leave for a little while, and then, you know, next month you've got a new movie, now they're dumping on you, um, I don't know, 10 episodes of an hour, you know, 10 hours of content that you blow through in a week or less, and then, you know, you're not going to be satisfied with just two more hours, you want 10 more hours and 10 more hours and 10 more hours. So you can see where a lot of the money is flowing into series and less into features. So, you know, a movie like Saving Zoe is a, is a slow burn thriller sort of of sorts. It's a drama, I guess, more than a thriller. And even though it deals with a real life issue and even though it's based on a, on a great book – um, Noel did a fantastic job with the book. And I think the movie came out fantastic as well. I'm really, really happy with the way that the team came together and and put together a strong project. It's just it it is not necessarily what is easily marketable, and I don't necessarily think that that was the the theme. Although you know that that plays a part. You know, it's hard to get a product placement when the themes are you know edgier and more real life, and um. You know you. You could make a movie like, – like if that movie had a bigger budget and bigger actors potentially in it or like a, a bigger studio supporting it, you know, you maybe you could have gotten into theaters and maybe would have had a chance to do better. But as an indie, it's not terribly marketable. It doesn't necessarily have um, – you know, I talked earlier about the sort of the exploitative elements that you want for a good genre fic. It doesn't really have those things. Um, it's got a couple young actresses, so they've got a following. So that's kind of helpful, and it's it's got uh, an important theme. So that's that's there. But but in terms of you know, the the sad part is is that that film is something of a money maker business, and as a byproduct of that, uh, you you the the studios are looking for what they can market, and this wasn't one of those. It wasn't a high school romance. It wasn't a, a horror movie. It was like a it was like a heavy drama. And so I guess from that position, pers- that perspective, it was taboo and it, it was harder to get it made. But uh, there's other stuff as well that kind of go into it. Uh, so yeah, that's it. You know, and then, as I said earlier, I'm hoping that because so many different streaming services are coming up, that they'll real. And, and by the way, they're starting to move away from that dump all the season at once strategy that Netflix uses that I think you might start to get the opportunity to see features come back to them and maybe lower budget features you know you, you start you start to see like Netflix is actually getting back into the feature business uh, in a way because because of prestige right because they want to get Oscars and Emmys and things of that nature and so like in some ways I feel like saving Zoe was a few years too late and also, I feel like it was a few years too early. It, it unfortunately kind of fell in a weird time when indie films were getting harder to get picked up, but uh, a little too early to where I think that these kind of films could have found a home that would have gotten uh, more airtime. So that's kind of that's kind of where it is with that. But you can find it. It's out there. It's probably on iTunes or Amazon or something. I think it's a good film. Check it out. We we worked really hard on it. We shot it um not too far from where I'm at now. Shut up uh, up in Augusta, Georgia. So it's a cool film. Uh, the Murano sisters are in it. They're great. They're super sweet and nice and fantastic actresses. And Jeff Hunt directed it, and he's killer, man. He does like all like The Riverdale's and um, Vampire Diaries, and he's just a stellar director. So uh, it's a good flick. Check it out if you can. You know, bummer that it didn't get a little bit more press and love. But here we are. This is what we're do- we're here to do. So check it out and let us know what you think. Dave Z
0: asks, why in so many horror movies is there always a happy ending? Wouldn't it be more devastating to the audience if the good guy didn't win?
1: Why do horror movies have happy endings? Um, well, it's because it's cathartic. You know, horror movies, I've said this a million times, horror movies are designed to, to uh, show the anxieties of the time period, but, but not just that. They're, they're not just reflective of of the anxieties of a particular period in time but they are a, a cathartic expression of that fear of that phobia so you know I, I've said this a million times like the reason why slashers were so popular in the 80s is because they were a reflection of Reagan morality right don't do drugs don't have sex you know all that just say no you still want that happy ending so that you can fully exercise that anxiety you know it's not just about drumming up that anxiety or drumming up that tension you you need the release some movies don't end happy um i don't want to i guess we look we've talked about midsummer on this show before i don't know if you've seen midsummer personally but i would not say that midsummer has a happy ending i think that you're starting to see more directors moving in that direction where they're willing and it's always been the case you know um I don't think it's totally totally outside the realm of uh, something that's done where a director might give you a either either a, a sad ending or like a, you think they're getting away and then they don't for like that last one last scare but but in general the purpose of a horror movie in particular, is to give you a cathartic experience. So, um, if you're watching, say, The Exorcist or The Omen, and you've got some sort of a Catholic anxiety built up in, within you about the devil and the devil taking over your life, um, you want to feel like you've come out the other end of it. You want to, you want to experience that within a safe parameters, right? It's the roller coaster analogy. You want to, you want to fear fear without actually, exp- you know, being subjected to danger and it's the same thing with movies especially horror movies or thriller movies is that you want to be subjected to that in some way but you don't want to you don't want it to end badly because then you're just as scared as when you walked in you want to it's like it's like i have a fear of heights if i ever wanted to get over this fear of heights i might put on a virtual reality helmet and practice walking across a virtual bridge to exercise that fear without actually having to be on a bridge you know, I don't actually want to fall to my death, nor do I actually want to even virtually experience that because that's, that's my fear. That's exactly the thing I don't want. So a lot of times horror movies, they serve that purpose. They, uh, they they do want to be devastating, but they don't want to be so devastating that you've come out feeling worse than you went into it. You want to feel like you had a full cathartic arc. You want to feel like you have a full cathartic experience and you come out the other end Maybe better for having gone through it, so uh, that's uh, that to me for it seems like the the main reason why most horror movies have some version of a happy ending or at least a releasing ending. It doesn't it's not always happy. you know a lot of your friends die in the movies, but you know one person survives and that's at least enough to give you that sort of release at the end.
0: Lily R asks why in movies based on true events do they add things in that didn't happen but leave things out that did, even if the actual events were crazy or important?
1: uh you know uh, uh, why do why do movies at events that didn't happen uh the beliefs uh, leave out other things uh it's i don't know i mean number 1 life is real life stories are not as interesting and and then sometimes they're and then sometimes real life things are so real they're unbelievable on screen it it has to do with the the median itself um you know you you've always heard people say like so and so happened it's so real you'll never believe it right well sometimes you don't believe it i'll give you a great example this is not necessarily within the realm of movies based on true events but um you see complaints all the time from people who watch horror movie about you know why did so and so run up the up the stairs when the killer was after them or um you know why did so and so do this dumb thing well, because in real life, people do dumb things. I mean, turn the fucking news on. it's pretty evident people do dumb things all the time. And, but, but, but in the world of cinema, we're not trained to expect that or accept that. So sometimes things get taken out because the writer and/or the director or the producers just feel like audiences't going to believe it. They're not get so crazy, it's so outlandish that they would never believe that that would occur. But more often than not, it's it's to create dem- dynamic tension, which is which is really the name of the game when it comes to filmmaking. I don't care what the genre is, it's about tension. It's about tightening the string to the point where it almost pops, and it really does cross genres. If you um, if you watch Home Alone, for example, right, you want to you want to know that what makes the comedy so funny is the danger, because if he's, if Kevin's never in danger then the you know Joe Pesci slipping on on micro machines isn't funny cuz it doesn't matter right it matters because there's tension because they might get him you know because they're getting that close to him so that's that's the name of the game in movies and oftentimes movies based on true stories true events they'll change the timeline they'll omit stuff they'll add stuff in now whether or not they make the right choices that comes down to the skill of the filmmaker and also the how the audience member i.e. you uh accepts it because you know you might you know everyone is different It's art is subjective and what you feel like was important maybe the filmmaker didn't and um what they felt was important maybe you feel like doesn't matter so that, you know, when it comes to that, that, that's really just like, did they make the right choice? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't, you know, but um, but generally speaking, you should never watch a biopic and think this is going to be real because it's it never is. Uh, you, you see it all the time to the point where, like, <laughs> I I get so annoyed every time there's a movie made about someone and then they come out afterward. And they're like, that's ah, not really what happened. We're like, no shit, dude. It's a fucking movie. Of course, that's not what's really happening. There's no there's no interest in telling a documentary. Even documentaries nowadays have, have punched everything up to make it more dynamic and dramatic. That's not the point. That's not the intention is to tell the true life story of Dave Oscuro, right? That, no one cares about that. You just want to hit the high notes. You want to emphasize it and you want to turn it to 11 so that the audience is engaged and encapsulated for you know two hours or a series or whatever it may be so you know they'll they'll pick and choose what they think is the most salacious that's it's almost like a clickbait you know biopic movies are like one long clickbait that's the only thing they care about they're not trying to give you the details it doesn't really matter what order things happened in it doesn't really matter like i I remember watching rocket man and like one of the, the very last song that they present as a song that he wrote after he came out of rehab was actually like way way later you know or maybe it was even before i forget but they you know they'll change the order of things all the time because again it's about creating a movie experience you know using as inspiration real life events it's job as a film is not to inform you its job is to entertain you and the way to entertain you is to tighten that dynamic tension All right, keep keep the drama high and then give you that release that's what it's all about every every movie that you love think about it Rocketman, will Elton John beat drugs or not? Um, this is why I think it's far superior to say uh, Bohemian Rhapsody because there was a little bit of that as well. Will, will Freddie Mercury uh, overcome the, the bad influences in his life and reunite with his band? Um, Home Alone, will Kevin reunite with his family and, and foil the the sticky bandits or the wet bandits? I forget which one was which movie. Uh, Blade Runner, will will Deckard capture roy will roy get longer life like uh, these dramatic moments these questions that'll get answered like the whole point of it the best movies just wind that up wind it up wind it up wind it up and think about every flick you like it doesn't matter how stupid the flick is either i'm trying to think of like a uh even step brothers right that's why they fight through half the film or um i don't know you could go on and on and on right every movie no matter the genre you know, Fable Goes West, uh, Airbud Airbud 2, Dunstan Checks In. And like none of those, it doesn't matter the flick or the genre. It's all about creating tension. And so when you're doing a movie that's based on a character from real life, uh, th- that's what you do. You wind it up. But we, me, me and uh, our co-host from the, a couple of episodes ago, Jason, we watched a movie called The Death of Stalin. And I guarantee you, while there's a lot of aspects of that that are based in real life, there's a whole ton of it that's added for comedic effect which is just another byproduct of of the tension right so that's the reason for it it's to spice it up to make it more interesting and more entertaining to you the audience members so you will tune in and you will watch it and you will be entertained well thank you guys for everything great questions as always uh i love i love spending time like i said at the beginning of the show especially when it's just me i really love spending that kind of time to uh to talk with you guys sort of sort of directly you know answer your questions hopefully add some perspective of it
0: matt b asks do you think people get into filmmaking for the same reasons they used to is it still for the love of the craft or is it for fame
1: and money oh i missed a question oh let me go back okay uh, okay so um maybe and maybe not i mean that sounds like a little bit of a cop out of an answer but the reality of it is is that people have always gone into film for different reasons I think in some ways it's much easier to get in the film because of the volume. It used to be certainly if you ask Jude, uh, it used to be so hard to get in a film, and you really it was like a it was like if you belong to a sort of an occultic or esoteric order, right? Or um, I'm trying to think like a, some sort of social status club. There are, there are levels that you have to achieve to rise up the ranks. Whereas nowadays. You know, you could be in film for two years and oh, poof, you're this, poof, you're that. You're a, oh, you own a red, you're a DP. Oh, you, uh, your buddy knows how to go get a restaurant for free, you're a producer, you know. Um, and that's not totally to be snide about it, but it is to sort of point out that, especially with incentive states and, 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 all, and just, again, the sheer volume means that people can get into it much easier. Now, does that, mean that people are getting into it for different reasons? I don't know about that. I I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to say. I think that what it does is it doesn't wash out people who are there for the wrong reasons as easily as it might have prior because film is really hard and it's oftentimes not very glorifying. And I think in an older time, even as far back as when I started, if if you weren't in it for the love of it i mean, it was like carny business you know it was like being in a band like it was like being in a band and getting in a van and driving around and gigging for 50 bucks like it was hard if you didn't love it there was no glory in it so gtfo you know but in the last 12 years if not you know 20 25 30 years you just see the the sheer volume uh, and of projects occurring and the budgets lowering which means the labor force is cheaper which means a lot of times they're less skilled And, or at least the opportunity for less skilled people to get in is increased, which is good from some perspectives, but it's also bad because it doesn't give the opportunity for people who, whose heart isn't really in it to realize they'd have an easier time selling toilets, you know? So from that perspective, I think that that has changed. Um, But there's plenty of people who get into it for the love of the craft. You know, we've had uh, David Venable on our show before that dude clearly loves the craft you know not just the movie which is also awesome but he you know he loves filmmaking you know i've talked about um you know nicholas wendy refin we've talked about jordan peele we've talked about and he's a bigger artist rob zombie you know i don't think rob zombie's in it for any other reason than he loves it i mean he gets so much flack for his films that he has to love it to keep putting his art out there to get shit on by you know the gatekeepers so and those are the bigger names right obviously there's plenty you know You know, misophilia, you know, it's not like it's not like it's glorifying to be a writer necessarily, but you love it and you put the work in every day. I mean, it just goes on and on. So I would say that there are plenty of people who get into film for the right reasons, for the love of of the art itself, for the love of the culture of it. But I also think that there's a lot of people that get into it that um, they don't have to face the hardships that an older generation did and therefore, they kind of skim by without ever kind of getting the right, from my perspective, the right attitude about it that makes the filmmaking process enjoyable. I think a lot of people who get into it come into it from a very selfish perspective. They don't put the art first. It's all about them. It's very ego-driven, um, which is, which is. I mean, I, I could do a whole separate podcast just on the ego and things that sort of drive people to uh, be negative in the world and, and not contribute. And just like any aspect of real life, you know, every job, every career is going to have a certain percentage of those people who are ego driven. And, and I don't mean ego just from the perspective of like cocky or arrogant, but just it's very much about themselves. It's about separating themselves, It's about feeding the ego and I think you see a lot of that in film and, I, and, and and there does take a certain level of ego confidence to do what we do to work in film, to put yourself out there as an artist or to shoulder the responsibility of someone's vision, of someone's safety. I mean, there is a certain level of that that does that is just intrinsically necessary. But I also think that there's a lot of ego that's completely and totally self-serving and you see it all the time. You see people who spend all their day puffing up their chests and telling you uh what producing is you know uh, the difference between a hurricane and producing these people have all the answers for it but but sometimes they lose focus on what's really important which is um which is the art itself i, I as a line producer as a as a producer i was once given some really good advice our job our job is to protect and to serve is to protect the budget but serve the vision Um, another piece of advice that I gave someone who was replacing me as I was moving on off of the show was if you wake up in the morning and you can imagine everything that could possibly go wrong on set and you accept it as all your responsibility and you can shoulder that and you can still make get out of bed and go to work, then you'll be fine and you'll figure the rest out. And if you don't have either of those mentalities I think not only are you not getting the best out of film, but I think you're bringing the entire the entire industry down as a whole. But that is sort of the nature of the beast. So, um, you know, like the wheel of fortune, the world keeps on turning and changing and evolving, and we can't be afraid of that. And this too shall pass, as they say. So, um, I, I try to focus my attention to the best of my ability on those who who are bringing that that right um, work ethic. And that general ethos into filmmaking, I'd rather just focus on that and work with those people and and help get their art out there than than worry about the malcontents and the ego-driven people and people who just got into this industry to to laminate their card and get laid at the bar or whatever. Those people have always existed, so that's never going to change. Whether that number increases or decreases, whether the person first shot of film school thinks they're certainly, you know, um, you know Wally Fister Jr., that's, that's really neither here nor there for me. I can't spend my time focusing on that. I just focus on um, doing the right thing by me, best I can, and working with people who, are, who get it, who are pleasant to work with, who are there to create the art, who are there to work together to create something kind of cool that hopefully lives on and entertains you guys, just like this podcast so uh, thank you guys. Apologize for reading the questions out of order. Happens. It's late at night, as always. And um high on coffee. I'm about to hit the road tomorrow. So I will be driving from Atlanta, Georgia, back to Austin. Or, well, not to Austin because there's a hurricane. Back to Los Angeles. Should be back by the weekend. So next time you hear me after this episode, I'll be back at my house back recording a new episode i have no idea on what or with whom but we'll figure that out between now and then and i want to thank you guys as always for joining me on this ride remember to vote in our witch tournament we have uh, suspiria the original versus rosemary's baby go to the slasher app vote on their monday post or check out our at grindhouse podcast instagram and vote in the stories and let us know what you think about valhalla rising let me know what you think about um really any you know anything that you've seen recently that you think I should talk about um, sometimes I'll have guests sometimes I'll do it solo it just kind of depends on how I feel and what's going on but uh, this show doesn't work without you guys' contribution so give it to me um, I check the stats all the time we get listeners from all over the world that is so rad uh, i I hope that you guys get something out of it so Message me on the uh, Instagram if you find it or you, we have a Facebook page. Go to the uh, at Grindhouse Podcast on Facebook. Just message me there. I'm open. DMs are open. Don't send me weird stuff. No dick pics or anything like that. Please appreciate that. You can send me dog pics. That's cool. I'm totally cool with that or like, you know, show me your art. That's what I'm really interested in. I would love to do something. I think down the line, if there's time, I'd like to re- reattempt a YouTube page and, um, and, and try to elevate people who – who are coming to film for the right reasons and give them a platform. So, you know, let me share what art you're working with. I've had, um, all kinds of cool people reach out with other podcasts or, you know, doing musician work or what have you. Um, if in some small way I can shine a spotlight, amplify your voice, uh, I am happy to do so because that's, that's what it, if someone didn't do that for me, then I wouldn't be here and I want to pass that down. And that's how, that's how cool stuff happens, you know, taking care of each other. That's how community works. So thank you guys. I love you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. Listen to me ramble on my solo podcast days. And until next time, adios.
0: You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Dramatic Tension Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify.